Welcome to episode 26 of Mike's Notes. Today, another episode about Warren Buffett. Invested in. That is Neville Istel, who worked at Coca Cola. And episode 24 was about Warren Buffett. This podcast episode is going to be about Warren Buffett's early years, as explained in Jeremy Miller's book, Warren Buffett's Ground Rules. I really liked the book because it provided a lens into some of the early thoughts Buffett had, thoughts that stuck with him for most of his career. Even though he changed tactics, his philosophy for a lot of things was the same. The book shares the letters that Buffett wrote when he ran the Buffett Partnership from 1956 to 1970. And early years like this can provide great stories because we see how people cut their teeth and the environment they grew up in, which is the history for the character in any story. By 1956, so when Buffett started his partnership, he was already a wealthy man from his investment work with Benjamin Graham, who we'll run into later in this episode. Buffett had finished working for Graham in New York City and returned to Omaha. There he teamed up with family friends, a family lawyer, and his famous Aunt Alice, who Buffett kept in mind as he wrote these letters. His goal in writing his annual letters, which turned into semi-annual letters, was to write things in a way that his Aunt Alice could understand. That is, the terms were simple enough that whoever was reading them, no matter their level of experience or education or how much they knew about investments, could understand what the philosophy of the firm was. This was important to Buffett at the time because he never disclosed what his investments were. In the ground rules, he laid out very clearly that he was not going to keep people abreast of every trade and what company they were invested in and where the money was and how much of the money. He laid out the rules and he said, take it or leave it. Those early investors took it and it was a wise decision for them. So let's get into a few things I learned from early Warren Buffett. One. Early Warren Buffett had honest benchmarks that mean something. And it took me a while to figure out where I had seen this idea before. So let me tell you what Buffett writes about and then the big idea that I think this relates back to. He told his early investors that they would only pay him once the return was over 6% a year. That is, if Buffett only earned 6% on their money, he didn't pay himself at all. Once he earned over 6%, he took a percentage of those earnings. And he did this, he said, because if he couldn't do better than the market, then they should just put their money in the market. He kept track against the Dow Industrial Average, but any sort of indexing now is the equivalent of that. This is what Buffett writes. Quote, If our performance declines to a level you can achieve by floating on your back, we will turn in our suits. Quote. He goes on with this, aquatic metaphor for many of his early letters. He writes this, quote, The rise and fall of the tide is hardly something for the duck to quack about, end quote. What I think Buffett is getting at here in his analogy of a duck, which we'll also come back to later, is the idea of opportunity cost and red flags. You have to know if something you're doing isn't working 
and how much that's costing you and when you should, you should switch. So you need to know if the opportunity cost is too high. If his investors could have put their money somewhere else and gotten greater returns, then that's a high opportunity cost. If there's a red flag, that is his investors like Aunt Alice don't know when to get out, don't know when it's a bad situation, then um, Buffett created something for her. And he was very honest in all of his early letters to investment partners. Benchmarks were Buffett's red flag for when he should do something else. To put it another way, when the opportunity cost was too high. Let's see if this fits. If this is a red flag and opportunity cost situation. First, red flags are indicators where something may be off and helpful when we have the principal agent problem. That is, one person is acting on behalf of another person, and that other person usually doesn't have all the information and the incentives aren't perfectly in line. In finance, this is especially common where funds grow in size. Managers often earn a percentage of assets under management, so they are at least partially incentivized to grow the assets, whether or not that's a good strategy for their investments or not. You hear fund managers avoiding this problem when they say they close a fund, that is, they don't welcome any more money. Having more capital to deploy isn't always a great thing. This is a very clear case where more is not obviously better. So Buffett needed to create something where he identified what the red flags were. In the previous episode about Neville Istel, we saw that he used the red flags of locker room cleanliness. That is, when he would go and inspect a Coca-Cola bottler, he would inspect the production facility, which the bottling plant expected, but he would also go to the locker room to see how clean those were, to get a general idea about overall cleanliness at the bottler. We also saw how David Lee Roth inspected the lighting and stage they set up by having a are you paying attention moment in their rider. And then just out of the middle of nowhere said there will be no brown M&Ms in the backstage area or the promoter will forfeit the show at full price. What was the point? If I came backstage, having been one of the architects of this lighting and staging design, and I saw brown M&Ms on the catering table, then guaranteed the promoter had not read the contract rider and we had to do a serious line check because frequently we had danger issues or accidental issues. So what I think Buffett is doing here is giving his limited partners, giving his investors a chance to know what the red flag is. If he doesn't earn over 6%, maybe they should put their money elsewhere. If the rising tide lifts up a duck that doesn't flap his wings, Maybe it's not the duck that's doing all the work. And red flags are good because they get us through the opportunity cost of a situation to see what else we could be doing rather than what we're doing. Opportunity cost is the loss of a potential gain when an alternative is chosen. No matter how great your summer vacation, if you go to the ocean beach, you can't also go to the lake house at the same time. If you watch TV, you can't read a book. If you buy a new car, you can't use that same money to upgrade your kitchen. Mark Andreessen addressed this with investments and pointed out that opportunity costs can be measured in dollars, minutes, and chances. Andreessen said, quote, The investors in Friendster were more likely than not unable and unwilling to invest in Facebook when it came along because they were conflicted, end quote. So Andreessen explains that there are multiple parts of the opportunity cost of a situation. Early Buffett combined the idea of red flags and opportunity costs to create a good situation for his investors and himself. 
the red flag of earnings of at least 6% was a potential alarm for when the opportunity cost of investing with Buffett was too high. 2. Warren Buffett emphasized the value of flashlight systems over lantern systems. The other day I saw this up close. Some neighborhood kids were playing at dusk when one of them said she lost her retainer in the grass by our swing set. We turned on all of our outside lights, our lantern lights that shine all around the yard, but they weren't bright enough to focus on the important areas. We only found her retainer after we turned on the flashlights and looked under a certain part of the swing set. And Buffett applied this general idea in four specific er areas early on. The first was what he called cigar butt companies. Buffett's early process was to focus on the book value of a company and see if it was trading anywhere near what the book value was, what the company could sell all of its assets for. He was a student of Benjamin Graham, the, the father of value investing. Graham and Buffett liked to find companies whose unnoticed assets on the books were really valuable. For example, each found companies that held stock portfolios that were greater than their own stock price. That is, if a company's value, for example, is $1 million and you look at their reporting and it shows that they have a $1 million worth of stocks, you buy the portfolio and you get the company for free. The second area Buffett used his flashlight was looking for quality companies. As time went on, Buffett switched to focus on the quality of a business rather than the quantity of assets relative to the price. Here too though he kept his focus, writing to his limited partners that it was better to double down on your best idea rather than pursue your seventh favorite. That meant that at one point he had 40% of his holdings in a single company, American Express. The third instance Buffett demonstrated the flashlight over lantern approach was when he emphasized gains over taxes. Too many people, Buffett wrote, focus too much on taxes rather than their gains. You only have so much energy and effort and attention that you can direct in a day. And if you can increase your gains, it's going to outpace the effect of taxes every single day. The fourth way Buffett focused on something very clearly was in emphasizing the importance of people over wringing out every last bit of earnings. He wrote, quote, It does also not seem sensible to me to trade known pleasant personal relationships with high-grade people at a decent rate of return for possible irritation, aggravation, or worse, at a potentially higher rate, end quote. So Buffett here, too, was focusing on the most important thing. He was using a flashlight to find what was most valuable to him. That was working with good people, and gains over taxes, and doubling down on your best idea, and then really early in his career, finding the cigar butt companies. At different times and in these different areas, Buffett focused on different things, but he always used the flashlight rather than the lantern. When magician Penn Gillette was talking about how he came up with a new trick, he said that something him and his partner Teller did was to hire a handful of people to come and watch them practice the trick. One person would sit front and center, another would be wide left, someone else would be wide right. 
A few people would be up in the balcony and then others would be scattered throughout the auditorium. Then, as Gillette and Teller practiced, these spectators would call out any time they saw something that gave the trick away, and Penn and Teller would have to begin again. Their most important thing was that the tricks weren't seen, and things were built up from there. Napoleon Bonaparte said the most important thing about a soldier was the training, not the plans. Storyteller Ira Glass said the most important thing for your career is to do a lot of work, especially early on. There are always some things that are most important things that tend to bring most of the value. Buffett's current partner, Charlie Munger, likes to say that a few of his mental models, quote, carry really heavy freight, end quote. Three. Warren Buffett was and still is a relentless searcher. He wrote this in a letter to those early limited partners. Quote, you have to turn over a lot of rocks to find those little anomalies. You have to find companies that are off the map. Way off the map. End quote. The second big idea, focus on the most important thing with a flashlight, not a lantern, isn't always easy. In fact, for Buffett, it was often quite hard. Buffett's partner, Charlie Munger, said that Benjamin Graham, Buffett's teacher, could, quote, run his Geiger counter over the debris from the collapse of the 1930s and find things selling below their working capital per share, and so on, end quote. Even though Buffett and Munger followed and learned Benjamin Graham's value investing techniques, they couldn't apply them in the same way because the conditions had changed. Graham was investing after the 1929 collapse, and he could find a lot of things. And those opportunities had mostly been scooped up for Buffett and Munger, so they had to do other things. They had to be relentless searchers to find those options. Elizabeth Gilbert talked about this for writers. Writing seems like a great job, but it's like Buffett's work in a lot of ways. They, too, have to turn over a lot of rocks. In a July 2016 interview, Rich Cohen was on the podcast tour to talk about his latest book, The Sun, the Moon, and the Rolling Stones. And he said that most of what he writes and researches people don't see, but the work eventually pays off. Here's Gilbert again. Quote, I have this theory that everything that's interesting is mostly boring. Life is filled with all these interesting things, and we chase the high and the buzz of the excitement of the thing, but 90% of the thing is boring. The trouble people get into is that they go into creative careers because they want an interesting life, and then they're amazed to find out how much tedium and boring is in there. But if you could stick through the boring part, there's a stupendous reward. End quote. Gilbert explains that it's not fun to be in a hotel on Christmas Eve all by yourself. The eight-hour bus ride to the incredible place that you'll get pictures at isn't that much fun either. Gilbert sounds so much like Buffett. Here you have people that seem quite different. The author of Eat, Pray, Love, and one of the richest investors in the world, but both suggest this turning over many rocks theory of work. There's a trick to it, and it's not a shortcut, but something else that can help you with your relentless searching. Relentless searchers often love the grind. They love the process. Jocko Willink was asked on his podcast about how he gets up every day to exercise, even though it never ends. Somebody asked if he thought his workouts were Sisyphusian, that is, 
he pushed the rock up every day, but it rolled down only to be pushed up again the next day. And Willink, this former Navy SEAL, this business consultant said, that's not the point. The point is the process of pushing the rock up. You have to love the act of pushing the rock if you're Sisyphus. You have to love the grind. A second way to turn over many rocks is to reframe the search as a game. Ray Dalio, an investor in the same class as Buffett, thinks of the process like a puzzle. This is what he writes, quote, I learned that there is an incredible beauty to mistakes because embedded in each mistake is a puzzle and a gem that I could get if I solved it, a principle that I could use to reduce my mistakes in the future, end quote. So Dalio rethinks of the search as a game. Anytime you've done something like this with kids, you can see what he means. If you can frame any sort of a game from picking up your clothes or turning over uh, seashells on a beach into a game with kids, they jump into it more readily. They embrace the endless searching. Another way people use to become relentless searchers is they adopt a curiosity mindset. If you don't love the grind and if you can't turn it into a game, then you can try to be curious. Brian Grazer writes about this in his book, A Curious Mind. And one of the great stories he tells in the book is about how the movie Splash got made. And he says that the kernel of Splash was what happens when a mermaid comes out of the ocean and onto dry land. And nobody wanted to make this movie. And Grazer writes in his book that he had to be curious about the answers. He had to be a relentless searcher to figure out why. This is what Grazer writes. Quote, First, I listened to the no. There was information in the resistance that I had to be curious about. I would say, it's a movie about a mermaid coming onto land. She meets a boy. It's funny. That didn't work. I would say, it's a movie about a mermaid coming onto land. She meets a boy. It's kind of a fantasy, you know? They weren't buying it. I needed to understand what people were saying no to. Were they saying no to a comedy? Were they saying no to a mermaid fantasy? Were they saying no to me, to Brian Grazer? End quote. So Grazer kept asking questions, and those questions were his form of turning over many rocks. It was his form of his relentless searching. It was about what Gilbert writes about, where you go and you explore and you go through all the dirty, grimy, hard work to find something that's really valuable. And for Grazer, that happened. After seven years of relentless searching for answers, Splash was in theaters, and it became a hit. And it was part of the reason that Tom Hanks and Daryl Hannah had successful careers. And it certainly was the start of his successful career in Hollywood. It takes relentless work to succeed. For Buffett, it meant finding different companies. For Dalio, it means reading a lot. For Willink, it means loving the workouts and the grind. And for Grazer, it meant asking a lot of questions. A final way to be a relentless searcher is to regularly succeed. And to do that, you need to create win-win situations. Four. Buffett called his win-win situations when he found two strings on a bow. This was when, after an investment, a company could either increase in value and Buffett's holdings would rise accordingly, or Buffett could take a controlling interest in the company and adjust its course. Buffett was like a pirate. If the captain did his job well, the profits would be shared by everyone. If he didn't, then the crew could vote a new captain in and chart a change of course. That new captain would be Buffett. Astronaut Chris Hadfield 
writes about win-win situations uh, the best in his journey of going to space. He was excellent at this because he was always thinking about how he could succeed in the day-to-day things, but also make a big win in the long term. Hadfield was born in Canada at a time when there was no Canadian space agency. That meant if he wanted to get to space, he had to get friendly with a country that went there. He had to thrive in all the training he did and survive it too. Testing out aircraft is a dangerous business. He recognized the long odds, but couldn't give up on his dream, so he created win-win situations on his journey from flying airplanes on his grandpa's farm to maybe, possibly, becoming an astronaut. Here's what Hadfield writes, quote, It's probably not going to happen, but I should do things that keep me moving in the right direction, just in case, and I should be sure those things interest me, so that whatever happens, I'm happy, end quote. So Hadfield was a test pilot, which would be skills he needed as an astronaut, but was also a good job that challenged him mentally and provided a uh, good income for his family. He worked on land and training missions and stayed in good physical shape. And all this while, he talked to his wife about his career and his kids so that his family was never that far out of the loop. When Louis C.K. looked for a place to film his show, Horace and Pete, he booked the Penn Hotel studio before he had any actors on schedule, before he had most of the scripts done, and before he really knew what he was going. He just knew that it was a great place, and it seemed risky to put down a big deposit, but Louis didn't see it that way. He knew that he could always sell his time there to someone else who wanted to film and would end up pocketing a little bit of money on the top. That is, CK created a win-win situation because he either got to film his show there or he made a little bit of money subletting that space to someone else. Another example of a win-win situation was Arnold Schwarzenegger tells in his biography Total Recall. Early in his career, Schwarzenegger was an ice cream salesman and said that there was a lake near his house that people went to in the summer. The big draw of this lake was that sweethearts could go there and they could sit on a blanket and enjoy nature and the views. Well, Schwarzenegger found out that those lovebirds didn't like to get up to get their own ice cream. So he would start buying ice cream cones from the stand at one part of the lake and walking around the lake to sell them. Eventually, the stand owner found out what Schwarzenegger was doing and bought him a cooler so he could sell even more. This was great, Arnold said, because he could earn some money and he could work on his tan. A win-win. 5. Don't forget who you're dealing with. And you're dealing with people. Throughout Buffett's early letters, he was always reminding his investors The gains they had so far were good and probably couldn't be replicated year in and year out. Buffett thought a lot of himself. He thought he was a really good investor and he had the track record to prove it. But he was always trying to head off the train of emotions that his investors might be feeling. This is what he wrote. Quote, It is most important to me that you fully understand my reasoning in this regard and agree with me not only in your cerebral regions but also down in the pit of your stomach, end quote. After a decade of investing, he offered much the same advice. Quote, the results of the first 10 years have absolutely no chance of being duplicated or even remotely approximated during the next decade, end quote. And the year after he wrote that, Buffett 
had his best year ever. Buffett understood that he was always dealing with people. So I think the reason he put these warnings, these uh, tempered thoughts into his letters, even though he was doing really well, is because he knew that people behave in crazy ways. This has been true for a long time. 2,000 years ago, Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius kept a diary or a journal that he wrote for himself. Advice and lessons and things he learned that he wanted to reflect upon and not forget. His diary has been turned into the book Meditations, and it's really good. It's one of my favorite books. One of the best lines of Aurelius' book that I often go back to is this. Quote, begin each day by telling yourself, today I shall be meeting with interference, ingratitude, insolence, disloyalty, ill will, and selfishness. End quote. People will act like people, and they will be emotional, and they will do dumb things, and they will respond to all kinds of incentives. And if you can remind yourself that you're dealing with people, you can start to take the right sets of actions. Buffett recognized this, even though he was having these amazing years as an investor, returning 10, 12, 15, 25% to his investors. Um, he still uh, warned them that things wouldn't always be this good. He understood that they were emotional beings. When Richard Thaler was a student, he was in an economics class and didn't quite understand what the professor was explaining. Not conceptually, he got that, but practically. The professor was saying things that were one way when Thaler had observed them quite differently. He went home after class, opened up a notebook, and wrote at the top of the page, Dumb Things People Do. Thaler's list grew over time as he recorded other things he saw people do that was different from the standard economic theory that he was learning, that was different from the efficient market hypothesis. This list of things that Thaler observed was the seed for the field of behavioral economics. So Thaler understood that people were doing things that didn't quite make sense, and he started to write them down, and eventually he developed a theory that would explain some of what those people do. People are a Pandora's box of emotions, feelings, and chemicals. People are like the weather. It's helpful to remember this. Buffett tried to stop the storm before it became an avalanche of emotions. When he wrote to the people that they should understand in the pit of their stomach, he understood that when their shit hit the fan, people would probably act differently. Six. A word about ducks. Part of Buffett's beauty is the homespun simplicity in what he says. In the early letters, this took the form of a duck. Here are a few of my favorite duck quotes from Buffett's early letters. Quote, the rise and fall of the lake is hardly something for him to quack about. End quote. Another great one. Quote, if our performance declines to a level you can achieve by floating on your back, we will turn in our suits. End quote. And then uh, one more. Quote, I like to think we've flapped our wings a few times, end quote. Buffett's use of the duck and the rising tide analogy is really wonderful because it's a good reminder that there are macro effects, there are market effects that may explain the success of some people. Oren Hoffman is an investor, too. Unlike Buffett, he invests in Silicon Valley and software companies, but like Buffett, he's very humble. In an interview on the Product Hunt podcast, he was asked about investing advice, and this is what Hoffman said. Quote, 
None of your listeners should take advice from me on investing. I've been a very active investor in the last eight years, and if you were a very active investor in the Valley, 100% of them did really well, end quote. Hoffman is pointing out here that the level of the pond rose. It didn't matter whether ducks were flapping their wings or not. It wasn't the action of the duck. It was the action of the pond. It was the market. It was the conditions that led to the rise. Rising and falling tides are like markets and conditions, and the ducks are like the companies that sit on them. That means there are two skills at play here, identifying which pond to land in and knowing why you're moving. When Damon John started FUBU, he said that he saw a rise in hip-hop culture. That's landing in a good pond. John could have failed to flap his wings, too, but he succeeded there because he got both right. He knew what pond to land in, and he swam around well. Milton Hershey landed in a pond we can call the rise of national brands. Hershey, as we saw in episode 22, succeeded because he, too, flapped his wings in a rising pond. J.C. Penney is an example of a company that was founded in the same area and lived in the same pond as consumables with national brands that required good distribution, but that company may have stopped flapping its wings when the water kept rising, and they didn't know it. Warren Buffett is great. I can't get enough of him, but this will be the last Buffett podcast for a while because I think we've learned a few things from Buffett that we can apply to other areas. One, red flags are really helpful, especially when the principal agent problem is at play or you don't have much information or the opportunity cost is really high. Two, most important things are worth our focus, like a flashlight rather than a lantern. If we can focus on those most important things, a lot of other things will take care of themselves. Three, relentless searching needs to be done to succeed in any field. You can enjoy the searching process, or you can turn it into a game, or you can adopt a mindset of curiosity. Four, you can create win-win situations. That is, every day you win a little battle and in the long run you win the war, whether that's in your career or in your investing. Five, remember that you're dealing with people every day. Kids throw tantrums. Adults throw tantrums. Kids are unprepared. Adults are unprepared. It doesn't matter. You're dealing with people. Get used to it. Six, remember that ducks on a pond can flap their wings or they can float on the rising tide. Choosing a pond can also be important. Thanks for listening to episode 26 of Mike's Notes. That's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then leave and take your book with you.